Okay, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Lord, uh, that you are an awesome God. That you are worthy to be praised. That, Lord, in all our life situations and struggles and sorrow and joys, things that we're, we're really celebrating, things that we enjoy in life, Lord, you are above all those things and you are always worthy to be praised. And we thank you, Lord God, that we come here together to celebrate, to worship you, to learn about you, to hear from you, Lord God. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be here with us, your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, stir in us, Lord God, challenge us, Lord Jesus, that you would be the teacher today. So, Lord, we thank you for this time and give you glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I, I thought about this, and it's been seven months now since I've been here. I don't know about you. I don't know whether that's a long seven months or a short seven months, but it's, it seems like, wow, it's already been seven months since I've been here. And, uh, you know, I'm still, we're still in the process of getting to know each other, and there's so many more of you that I, I want to get to know. And so this is my time to also kind of open myself a little bit to, for you to get to know me as well. Um, so one aspect of getting to know me, know me, I don't know if I've shared this here at the pulpit, maybe I've shared this story with you all, but um, some of you may have never heard of how Jamie and I got together. Any of you, did I share that story? Okay, all right, so I didn't share that story yet. So how Jamie and I got together, uh, we met, I'll give you the short version, don't worry. Uh, we met playing pool in our college dorm. First year, freshman year of college, we met playing pool. There was a community pool table in the dorms, so I met her one day uh, after, oh, I'm going to share the, I'm not going to share the embarrassing points. Let me get to the point. So we met playing uh, pool, we met in the dorms, and uh, so, you know, day after day, we tend to see each other, so we kind of like, you know, started to talk and stuff, and uh, and that time, uh, her dorm room was on the first floor, the same floor as the pool room. And, you know, day after day, as time goes on, you, you, you see somebody, you connect with people, and you get to know, you become friends. And so her dorm room on the first floor happened to be kind of like the hangout spot for our circle of friends, you know. So we'd hang out with her, and, you know, I started to kind of, you know, be interested. So... She didn't know this, and so, you know, as time went along, semester went along, I tried to find every opportunity to hang out with her, and roommate, and be in a room to get to know her, right? So we hung out, and, you know, we quickly became good friends. You know, we became such good friends that, you know, there were times when we would go out for long walks on the campus, because we're in the dorms, so we'd go on campus, and we'd take long walks, you know, and, and long conversations together, and a lot of times, you know, just at night to get away from all the noise from everybody, we'd go out for long walks. I don't recommend that to you female college students. Don't go on long walks with some guy on campus, all right? Don't do that. But she's happened to think that that was Okay. But unbeknownst to her, and never use that word unbeknownst, but unbeknownst to her, she didn't realize that I started having feelings for her. And, those, and the, as time went on, those feelings got stronger, and it changed more and more. Now, to know me, I tend to, when I need to make decisions, I don't make decisions without calculating risks. I weigh out my options, right? What do I have to gain 
What do I have to lose? And as our friendship grew, I wrestled with this, this decision. Do I express my feelings for her or do I keep it to myself? Because I know once I express my feelings for her, here's the risk, right? I weighed my options. I could risk losing a really good friend. Or I can gain my first girlfriend. What do I do? So I calculated that risk. What do I have to gain? And what do I have to lose? You know, we make decisions like this every day. We may not think about it, but we make decisions like this every day. What do we have to gain? What do we have to lose? Of course, some of those decisions are more important than others, right? We make decisions like, is something we want to buy worth the price tag, worth the cost, right? Is what we want to invest in worth the investment? Is it worth the risk? If you, if you are into stocks and stuff, is my investment worth the risk? Is this worth the extra calories? I had to weigh that option last night. What we ate, is this worth the extra calories? I'm still debating whether that was worth the extra calories. Will the benefits of what there is to gain be worth the potential loss? We make decisions like this every single day, whether we realize it or not. And see, when we're young, we don't, we don't think about these things, right? When you're young, you don't think about, well, what do I have to gain? What do I have to lose? When I was a dean of students at school, and I, and, and I had to call students into my office for some things that they did, especially the younger ones, the middle school ones, I, I sit them down, and I'm trying to say, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? I don't know. Did you realize what the consequence would be? No. They, when you're young, you're not thinking about it. You just do, right? You see what you want, and you do. But when you get older, hopefully we're usually not the same way, right? When we're older, we calculate the risk. What do we have to gain? What do we have to lose? Well, the most important decision we face in life is what do we do with Jesus Christ? What do we do with him? What do we do with who he is? What do we have to gain in following Jesus? What do we have to lose in believing in Jesus? That's what we're going to look at today. And let's look at what Paul has to say. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Goes like this. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is not trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, real quick, now, Paul here, there's a distinct transition in Paul's letter from the last time we read. Right? Remember, Paul was writing to the letter. He was talking to the church, telling him who he was going to send. And here we have a distinct transition here. He says, finally, or, or in other words, further brethren... Here's what I want to say to you. He gives us another charge to the church. Now, up until this point in the letter, what Paul had to say, some of the charges that Paul had, some exhortation Paul had for the church. The first one we saw is in verse 27 of chapter 1. He said, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
The second charge in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Regard one another as more important than himself. Have this attitude in yourselves that's also in Christ Jesus. And the third charge we saw in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you were to summarize all these charges, what is Paul trying to get us? What is, what is he instructing us to do? I would summarize in this. Remember who you are in Christ, for those of you who are believers in Christ. Remember why and how you came to Christ. And then third, to live in a way that is appropriate and expected of those who are in Christ. Right? So up until this point, the charges, the instruction that Paul has for us. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember how and why. Remember what Christ did for you. How you came to Christ. And then live in a way that is expected of someone who follows the Lord. Okay, so you summarize those charges. And so here in chapter 3, we see this other charge. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, I say this to you for your security, right? It's not a bother to me that I'm re- repeating this again, but he says this for your security. He says, rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Now, up until this point in the letter, Paul mentions joy or some form of rejoicing 11 times already up until this point. This is the 12th mention of joy or rejoice in his letter to this point. And then he would mention it five more times later in this passage or in Philippians. So if you kind of think about it, all that we've heard so far in the study of Philippians, serving, selflessness, humility, suffering for Christ, these have all been important themes that we've heard in the book of Philippians, right? But what can't get lost is this important theme that Paul is trying to get at. Rejoice. Joy. Now, I think it's interesting that he mentions joy. Because when it comes to suffering, it's easy to forget joy, right? Right? When you're struggling, do you remember joy to be joyful? It's hard. How about in serving? Those of you who serve in church, how many of you in this, this morning, wait, you've done something in church today, did you remember to rejoice? Did you remember to do it with joy? Or did you kind of forget about the joy part? Right? When you set up in this morning, whether it's a worship team or the tables, were you rejoicing or you just kind of doing your thing? Sometimes we forget to rejoice. Sometimes we forget the joy in life. Even in suffering, being humble, we have to rejoice and do it joyfully. To be selfless, do be selfless with joy. How I many of you, if you have siblings... When you do something for each other, do you do it with joy? No. (laughs) When you do something for your parents, do you do it with joy? Or do you grudgingly, they're asking me to do something again. Parents, when you do something for your children, do you do it with joy? Or do you do it with like, can't wait till they get older. Can't wait till they graduate. I can't wait till they're out of the house. Joy is something we forget. It's like we leave it at home sometimes when we leave. 
So it's, no, it's not a little thing that Paul reminds them to rejoice, to have joy. But it comes with a qualifier. It says rejoice in the Lord. There is joy in the Lord. What God has done for us is so that we can experience joy in its fullness. Now some of you may be wondering, well then Pastor Mike, where's my joy coming from? Because I look around my life, I don't see a lot of joy. Seems like my joy left me a long time ago. How can we experience joy in times of sacrifice, in times of suffering? In my life right now, where is my joy? How can I rejoice? Paul's going to make a case for that as we go along in the letter. Let's go on to verse 2. We'll, we'll hold that thought for a second. Paul goes on and says, But beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now here's a quite a very uh, a drastic emotional switch up here. It's a big contrast. We go from Paul reminding us to rejoice and have joy to this very striking threefold warning here. This kind of sense of be aware of, be mindful, pay attention to this. And he says, be aware of or be mindful of the dogs, the evil workers. Oh, man. I wasn't supposed to go that far. I think I missed... Uh... All right, anyways. Where am I going? Oh, you know what? Pastor, help me out here. I'm sorry. I just, all right, there you go. Be aware of the dogs, the evil workers, the cut-up mutilation. I knew I was off on my slides when I heard you kind of giggling. Like, why are you giggling about those who mutilate the flesh? When Paul's talking about here, he's not a cat lover. Sorry to tell you. Now, Paul might have been a cat lover. I don't think so. He was a godlier person than that. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Paul's not referring to the actual dogs here. He's not referring to the four-legged animals we love. Okay? In those days, they had a different value of dogs than we do now. He's not talking about your little, you know, third child that you have at home or fourth child, whatever it is. In those days, dogs were despised. They were looked, they, they represented those who, you know, when, when people refer to them as dogs, you know, today when we say the word dog, it can have different meanings, right? You can have a buddy call him, that's my dog. Right? That means like, it's your guy, right? If you're talking to like two females, you're talking about, he's nothing but a dog. What is he saying there? It's kind of low, right? Low character, shady. Can't trust him. Right? In those days, when you referred to someone as a dog, it represented a lack of moral character. The Jews, when they spoke of the Gentiles, referring to them as dogs, they represented those who were ceremonially impure. Even the Greeks referred to use that that phrase dog to represent offensively bold behavior, brash, cocky. 
So when someone referred to as a dog, it wasn't like they were cute and cuddly. It was more their sense of an impure mind, ceremonially unclean. So who's Paul referring to here when he says warning of the dogs, those evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh? Who's Paul referring to? Most likely, Paul's referring to this, whoever these people are, most likely they were Jewish. And he's referring to them with a very biting sense of irony. Why do I say ironic? Because the Jews refer to the Gentiles as dogs. They were ceremonially unclean. They were impure. The Jews, they were the keepers of God's law. When they were circumcised, circumcision was the physical marker of God's covenant with the people. But the Gentiles, they were idolaters. So it's a good possibility that who Paul's referring to, they were Jewish, and most likely they were teaching some kind of teaching that was rooted in the Jewish law. That you had to maintain your do the works of the Jewish law for righteousness, salvation, whatever it may be. So Paul follows up this threefold warning, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, with this threefold contrasting declaration here in verse 3. He says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying those who are in Christ, we are the true circumcision. We're not just merely physically circumcised. See, circumcision was a physical sign, but of an inward condition. Paul understood circumcision was a matter of the heart. Verse 28 of Romans 2, Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. See, circumcision, while having been a physical sign of God's covenant with the people, and for those of you who are like, Pastor Mike, I don't know what you're talking about with circumcision. That is for your conversation on the car ride home with your parents. No. I mean, you can if you want. But what does it mean? Circumcision was that physical sign that God had with His people, that sign of the covenant with him. But it wasn't that in itself wasn't what made you faithful to God. Physical circumcision, if you're not faithful to God, was just what? It's just mutilating the flesh. It's just a physical thing that happened. Many make the parallel of circumcision in the Old Testament with baptism for us as Christians. Baptism is that physical expression of your salvation, your, your faith in Christ. What Christ did for you, you're accepting it as your, for yourself, what you have. But just because you get baptized doesn't mean that you're saved. It has to be something of the internal condition, something that God has done in you. They say, you know what? I want to belong to the Lord. I recognize what Christ did for me. And I will get baptized as an expression of my faith. If you get baptized and you don't believe in Christ, He's not Lord of your life, all you're doing is you're just getting wet. You're just going for a swim. So when we encourage you, for those of you who haven't been baptized, we want to encourage you to get baptized because it's an expression of your faith. 
The point what Paul is making here, and he mentions it three times in verses 3 and 4, he says, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in your physical body, in your physical merits, what you think you can earn or do on your own. Put no confidence in that. He's warning them, be mindful of those who think they're clean, but they're really not. They think they're doing good deeds, but they're really not. Be mindful of those who place their confidence in their flesh, in their own sense of piety, in their own sense of being good enough. See, the unbelieving Jews, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, but they failed to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of their scripture. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill the law, to fulfill what the prophets said about me. See, the law proved that people cannot maintain righteousness on their own. Rules do not make someone more righteous, right? Parents, how many of you have rules in the house? I hope you have rules in the house. How many of you, your kids follow your rules to a T, right? We all have angels here. I see the halos over their heads. That laughter was not in agreement, by the way. Rules don't make us more righteous. You can make rules, but what rules often do is show us how unrighteous we can be. How many rules we can break. Right? We can, we can do bad things. We can sin by following the rules, right? What the law showed is that we in of ourselves cannot maintain the level of righteousness or even any righteousness outside of God's intervention. Even the fact that God implemented the system of forgiveness and atonement in the sacrifices, even that couldn't maintain righteousness. It's an inward quality. It's an inward change that we need to have. And so Paul's message is consistent. He says we need to move away from this mentality that we can be good enough on our own. That we in of ourselves can attain some level standard of holiness and righteousness on our own. That we can earn our place before God. He says we will have nothing to boast about before God, outside of Christ redeeming us. When we stand before God, we will have nothing to boast about before God other than we belong to Christ. Paul continues in verse 4. He says, Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
Verse 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul declares here that if anyone had any reason to boast before God, it was Paul. If Jesus was not who he said he was, if you take Jesus out of the picture, Paul had every reason to boast. Paul lists all that he had going for him. I don't know if you do this. Do you ever, when you make a decision, do you make a list, a pro and con, a list? One column is the pros, what you have to gain. The other column is what you have to lose, your loss. Well, here's Paul's gain column here. What does he list here? Of all the gains, these are things that all that he had confidence in his flesh, all the things that he could have done. Here's his list. Heritage, his bloodline, he got that covered. Circumcised the eighth day according to the law of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of that bloodline. Education, he got that checked off. Training, he was a Pharisee. He was an expert at the law of God. Devotion, religious, absolutely. He was zealous. He was a zealous persecutor of the church. He was so committed to what he believed. He was so certain that the Christians were blasphemous that he even persecuted the church. Blameless according to the righteousness of the law. Here's Paul's resume. He checks all the boxes. He had the heritage, the education, the training. He was passionate. He was devoted, sincere in what he believed in. So convinced. Paul thought he did all that he needed to do. All he needed to learn to be worthy of God's kingdom. He had it all checked. This column once represented gain for Paul. His advantage. It was gain before Christ. What does verse 7 say? But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything that was once gained in Paul's life, he considered lost. It was no longer an advantage. Rather, it was damage to him. He realized, once he encountered Christ, that all that he lived for, all those things, was a disadvantage. They kept him from knowing the Lord. In fact, Paul even goes to lengths to say that all of that is a pile of garbage compared to to knowing Jesus. If you want to use that word for rubbish, you can use more colorful language, but it can be translated as garbage or poop. Excrement. It's all a pile of poop. You must have laughed at that, huh? That is what Paul saw. He looked at his resume. He said, compared to knowing Christ, that's what it looks like. That's what it is. 
All that was once gained for Paul is a loss. What was once an advantage for Paul was damaged. How can this be? How can Paul say that? What would lead Paul to make such a statement that everything he lived for, everything he dedicated his life for, was a loss? Now, this could be difficult for people to hear, right? It could be difficult to swallow. If I were to tell all of you that everything you lived for, you worked hard for, you dedicated for, is a loss, was a waste, was trash, you'd probably walk out these doors and never come back again. If I was telling your kids that everything you're studying for, everything you're working hard for, all those things is trash, you parents would have a line after service and say, Pastor Mike, we need to have a talk. You don't understand. I'm trying to get my kids to study. I'm trying to get my kids to go to college, build up their resume. See, we work hard to build up our resumes, right? We devote so much time and energy and money into building up that resume, what we do for our career, our education, and all those things. And all those things often represent our value, that we want to be worthy in people's eyes. We submit our resumes in hopes that we can be worthy in the eyes of other people. We invest in in our achievements, hoping they bring us joy, happiness. We hope that other people will bring us that joy, that happiness. Can we fathom considering all that we worked hard for, invested in as trash? Why does Paul say that? Remember what Paul said in chapter chapter 1, verse 21? For to me, what? To live is Christ, to die is gain. For Paul, his mentality was he doesn't live for work. He doesn't live for the achievements. He doesn't even live for his own happiness. So was it all a waste? I want to read in 1 Corinthians 9. This is what Paul says. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that, all, that, that I may be by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. What does that mean? Paul's not dismissing all who he is and all who he was. He doesn't invalidate his credentials. But for Paul, his identity was not a means to attain salvation and righteousness. His identity was not a means of the value and worth. Rather, those things are now instruments to accomplish something greater for Christ. Those things no longer identified himself and shaped him for his salvation, his righteousness, what he had to work for, what he had to attain. But he said, you know what those things are a means for me to accomplish the gospel. As a Jew, I was a Jew so that I could save my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Gentile, I also became so that I may win them to Christ. 
says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Considering what he gains, Paul was willing to lose it all. Those gains he could achieve, he, can, he couldn't compare to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. All those things that he worked for was nothing compared to knowing Christ. Be in the mind of Paul for a second. This guy was so devoted. He was convinced of what he believed in. But those things were the very things that hindered him from knowing Christ. They kept him from knowing Christ. And so what he's had to gain, he said, look, I remember what I was. But those things I counted all loss. What do I have to gain now? What was my gain? Knowing Christ Jesus, knowing the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's not what I can accomplish on my own, but what God has done for me. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death and attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, knowing Jesus, knowing our creator is far greater than anything I can accomplish on my own. Knowing my Lord, compared to what I can do on my own, that stuff is just garbage. That stuff doesn't compare for me knowing Christ. You see, the worth of all that we can accomplish and attain is only as valuable as how God can be glorified through them. Let me say that again. The worth of all that we can accomplish and attain in life is only as valuable as how God can be glorified through them. Our education, our jobs, our careers, our families, all those things. It's not saying that it's just meaningless. But what can, how can God be glorified through those things? Mark 8, verse 36. Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Think about that. If you were to gain all that you wanted, all that you worked for, you studied hard for, you prayed for that you can have, if you can have all those things, but if those things are the very hindrance of you or the hindrance for you to come to Christ, what is it worth? Think about that. All that you attained, all the awards on your wall, the houses you lived in, the cars you drive, the people, you, the connections, all those things, if those things keep you from knowing Christ, what is it truly worth? See, that's what Paul's saying. It's foolishness for us to think that we can just be good enough for God on our own. That we can earn our way to God on our own. Paul saying, don't put your confidence in the flesh. Let me end with this going, going back to verse 1. Remember the charge was to rejoice, right? What does this all have to do rejoicing with rejoicing? What does this have to do with joy in our life? Well, a key to experiencing lasting, consistent joy is to put no confidence in the flesh. You say, I need more joy in my life. 
I think a key what Paul is saying is don't put your confidence in the flesh. Think about all the stress in your life. All right? Think of all your stress, all that you worry about. How much of it is directly related to what you can or cannot do? How much of your stress and your worries is because of what you think you can or cannot do? What you're able to do, what you're unable to do. How much do we worry about how much we can achieve or not? How much of our unhappiness is centered on who we want to be and who we're not? When you look in the mirror, you say to yourself what you you can't be, what you're not, you're comparing to other people. How much of our joy is affected by those measurements of happiness that won't last? See, the more we can rest and trust in Jesus, I think we can experience more joy in our life. The more we don't put confidence in, our, in, in the things that we can do in our flesh, we put our confidence in Christ, the more we can experience joy in our life. I started the message with the story of Jamie and I. I didn't tell you how it ended. She said yes. You knew that, right? See, in considering the gains and losses, gaining a future wife, I outweighed the potential loss of a close friend. But I finally got to a point where I said I was willing to take the risk, even if it costed losing something extremely valuable. I knew that if I expressed my feelings for her, I'm probably going to lose my best friend at the time. Praise God, it turns out I didn't lose anything. But I gained. I gained my wife. My kids came from there too. What a bonus. Just kidding. But see, people often resist surrendering to the Lord because they're afraid of what they're going to lose. If I, if I surrender my life to God, that means I'm going to lose my career. I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose all those things that I worked so hard to do. They're so afraid that if I surrender value of what I earn, that I'm going to lose myself. Now, when you surrender to Christ, I don't know what changes may come. Maybe you do have a change of friends. Maybe you do have a change in career. That happens. That happened to me. But know that it comes for your better. That God, who knows you infinitely better than you know yourself, would want something better for you. But it may not even come at a change of career or friends. He may use those things for a greater purpose, to reach those for Christ. Here's what I'm getting at. We weigh the gains and the losses in coming to Christ. All that you work for, your parents, let me reassure you with this. I'll talk to your your children and say this. What you work hard for, your education, your job, all those things, if we can do it for the glory of God, instead instead of building the confidence in our flesh, we will find that God will place value on that far greater than we can imagine. When we work hard, we do it for God's glory, not for our own glory. And when we can do that, God will be say, you know what? I will bless that. 
instead of bearing it on our own. When it's all said and done, the one gain we can claim before God is we know Jesus and he knows us. You don't have to worry about being good enough for God anymore. You don't have to worry about that. That's what Christ did for us. I want you all to work hard. I tell my kids to work hard so that you can give God the glory. And he wants to bless you in your efforts. He wants to bless you in what he has for you. Don't put it upon yourself to do it on your own. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, as we come before you, Lord, we, we, we want to be found good enough. We work hard. We want to find purpose, find identity, find a good job, go to a good school, get talents, all those kind of things. We, we do so many things to build up our resumes, build up our self-confidence, to build up all those things, Lord God. Sometimes, Lord, though, you get lost in that. I pray, Lord, that we would desire you more than those things. That our confidence would not be in the things that we can do, but our confidence can be in you, Lord Jesus. And that you can give more fulfillment in those things than we can ever do on our own. May we know you, Lord Jesus, more and more. As we stand and worship, just have that in your thoughts, in your heart, in your mind as we praise. We say this, Jesus, in your name. Let's stand and let's worship.